thank you for, um, for your prompt attendance this morning. Many of you probably had the same experience I did. I had not just one shower, but two today. Um, one, one fully dressed, and uh, it was a rather wet morning, so uh, thank you for working through that and being here. We are in session number three uh, of our series, Working Through Old Testament Revival, looking particularly at the book of Second Chronicles. And so two yesterday in which Sandy Wilson was able to lead us, and we have our third session this morning, followed by our fourth. So I'm not going to waste further time. Let's welcome Sandy up this morning, and we'll get started. Thank you and good morning to you. It's great to see you on this rainy day. I understand it's going to clear up by noon, just in time for us to get to our cars without getting drenched. Uh, it's been a pleasure to be with a number of you uh, yesterday as well as Friday night. What If you were here for the Sandra McCracken uh, concert, was that not wonderful? You know, to be able to conclude and, and sing, <laughs> yes, indeed, uh, that we will... Uh, rejoice in the house of Zion. There will be weeping no more. Uh, and it was a great start to the weekend. And then for those of you who, here, who were here yesterday, you know that we looked at the whole issue of revival, its history, what is it, and so on. Well, we, we noticed in 2 Chronicles 7.14, which is sort of the program verse for all of 2 Chronicles, that the chronicler sets out the basic format for what he's trying to communicate to the Israelites probably around 400 BC when they were under Persian oppression. They were a small, in the eyes of the world, insignificant country. Uh, their economy was depleted. Their moral life was in declension. And they were wondering really if God had just altogether forgotten them and if there was ever any way back into his blessing. Well, the chronicler writes to them to show them, yes, indeed, let's go back to fundamentals. Go back to what Solomon experienced when he dedicated the first beautiful temple of Israel and God answered his prayer. And 2 Chronicles 7.14 gives us God's answer to Solomon's prayer. And in that answer, we'll see that God is promising that if you will seek him, you will find him if you seek him with all your heart. There will be revival. There will be renewal. There will be reformation uh, for God's people if you'll go back to the fundamentals. And he promises. So the chronicler wants to remind us in our times of distress that that is the way God is working. Now, it's, uh, we saw then that in Second Chronicles, uh, the chronicler uh, gives us illustrations for each one of the stipulations, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves, we saw that Rehoboam was the classic example of a, of a king who humbled himself before the Lord and the Lord blessed. If my people will humble themselves and pray, we saw that Jehoshaphat was the classic illustration of the king who sought the Lord in prayer and he mightily answered just as he did in Hezekiah's day. And then if my people will humble them, themselves and pray and seek my face. And we saw that Asa in Second Chronicles 17 is a classic example of the king who sought the Lord. And we'll look more at what that means to seek the Lord. And the Lord brought rest from their enemies on every side. He answered as he said he would. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. And we saw that Hezekiah was uh, an example of that. Now, to finish uh, our study of these characters, I want us to look at one in particular. And if you'll turn, uh, you've got it in your handout, but you can turn your Bible to 1 Chronicles 34. And I want us to read this text. I know it's lengthy, but there's a lot of important material here. And we do have a few minutes to cover it. And I want to make some comments from it to see what the revived life looks like and what the revived life leads to. And I think that Josiah in this uh, chapter is going to illustrate for us uh, some of the power of true spiritual revival in your life, my life, and the life of his church. Before we read the text, let's pray together and then we'll put our hearts and minds to the study of it. 
Father, we are deeply grateful this Lord's Day for the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom you have brought life to the full, to all of your children. And having now life in him, we gather this Lord's Day to study how we may renew that life in us, how we may be revived before your face. And so we study your word together. Speak, O Lord, for your servants listen. Amen. Second Chronicles 34, verse 1. Hear the word of God. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 31 years in Jerusalem. And he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and walked in the ways of David his father. And he did not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. For in the eighth year of his reign, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David his father. And in the twelfth year, he began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places the Asherim, and the carved and the metal images. And they chopped down the altars of the Baals in his presence, and he cut down the incense altars that stood above them. And he broke in, in pieces the Asherim and the carved and the metal images, and he made dust of them and scattered it over the graves of those who had sacrificed to them. He also burned the bones of the priests on their altars and cleansed Judah and Jerusalem. And in the cities of Manasseh, Ephraim, and Simeon, and as far as Naphtali, in their ruins all around, he broke down the altars and beat the Asherim and the images into powder and cut down all the incense altars throughout all the land of Israel. Then he returned to Jerusalem. Now in the 18th year of his reign, when he had cleansed the land and the house, he sent Shaphan, the son of Azariah, and Maaseah, the governor of the city, and Joah, the city of Joaz, the recorder, to repair the house of the Lord his God. They came to Hilkiah, the high priest, and gave him the money that had been brought into the house of God, which the Levites, the keepers of the threshold, had collected from Manasseh and Ephraim, and from all the remnant of Israel, and from all Judah and Benjamin, and from the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And they gave it to the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord. And the workmen who were working in the house of the Lord gave it for repairing and restoring the house. They gave it to the carpenters and the builders to buy quarried stone and timber for binders and beams for the buildings that the kings of Judah had let go to ruin. And the men did the work faithfully. Over them were set Jahath and Obadiah, the Levites of the sons of Merari, and Zechariah and Meshulam of the sons of Kohathites to have oversight. The Levites, all who were skillful with instruments of music, were over the burden bearers and directed all who did work in every kind of service. And some of the Levites were scribes and officials and gatekeepers. While they were bringing out the money that had been brought into the house of the Lord, Hilkiah the priest found the book of the law of the Lord given through Moses. Then Hilkiah answered and said to Shaphan, the secretary, I have found the book of the law in the house of the Lord. And Hilkiah gave the book to Shaphan. Shaphan brought the book to the king and further reported to the king, all that was committed to your servants, they are doing. They have emptied out the money that was found in the house of the Lord and have given it into the hand of the overseers and the workmen. Then Shaphan, the secretary, told the king, Hilkiah, the priest, has given me a book. And Shaphan read from it before the king. And when the king heard the words of the law, he tore his clothes. And the king commanded Hilkiah, Ahikam, the son of Shaphan, Abdon, the son of Micah, Shaphan the secretary, and Isaiah, the king's servant, saying, Go inquire of the Lord for me and for those who are left in Israel and in Judah concerning the words of the book that has been found. For great is the wrath of the Lord that is poured out on us because our fathers have not kept the word of the Lord to do according to all that is written in this book. So Hilkiah and those whom the king had sent went to Huldah the prophetess, the wife of Shalom, the son of Tokath, son of Hasra, keeper of the wardrobe. Now she lived in Jerusalem 
in the second quarter and spoke to her to that effect. And she said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Tell the man who sent you to me, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will bring disaster upon this place and upon its inhabitants, all the curses that are written in the book that was read before the king of Judah, because they have forsaken me and have made offerings to other gods, that they might provoke me to anger with all the works of their hands. Therefore, my wrath will be poured out on this place and will not be quenched. But to the king of Judah, who sent you to inquire of the Lord, thus shall you say to him, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, regarding the words that you have heard, because your heart was tender and you humbled yourself before God when you heard his words against this place and its inhabitants, and you have humbled yourself before me and have torn your clothes and have wept before me, I also have heard you, declares the Lord. Behold, I will gather you to your fathers, and you shall be gathered to your grave in peace, and your eyes shall not see all the disaster that I will bring upon this place and its inhabitants. And they brought back word to the king. Then the king sent and gathered together all the elders of Judah and Jerusalem. And the king went up to the house of the Lord with all the men of Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the priests and the Levites, all the people, both great and small. And he read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant that had been found in the house of the Lord. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before the Lord to walk after the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of the covenant that were written in this book. Then he made all who were present in Jerusalem and in Benjamin join in it. And the inhabitants of Jerusalem did according to the covenant of God, the God of their fathers. And Josiah took away all the abominations from all the territory that belonged to the people of Israel and made all who were present in Israel serve the Lord their God. All his days they did not turn away from following the Lord, the God of their fathers. Thus ends the reading of God's word. May he bless it to our understanding and to our obedience and love for him now and always. Some of you uh, older timers will remember the name John Bradshaw. He had a series on PBS entitled The Family, and he wrote a book called The Family. A psychologist, not a believer, but he was particularly interested in the lives, the backgrounds of people who were involved in alcoholism and other addictions. And his discovery in, in all of his 21 years at that time of counseling and his research was he had never really dealt with an alcoholic who had not come from a, what he called a dysfunctional family. So the word dysfunctional family was very popular at the time. And Bradshaw <coughs> showed how this occurs, that you'll have uh, a little child who is abandoned in some way, either emotionally or physically by parents, and they begin to lose a sense of identity. At the same time, what they do is they, uh, they create what he called, uh, borrowing it from another psychologist, a fantasy bond. That is, I, as a young child, am bonded to my parent, even though my parent has abandoned me. And the fantasy of it is, I fantasize that my parent is perfect. So when you're a little child, I mean, I remember this because my dad was an alcoholic. I remember thinking as a child, an eight-year-old, I could not think of anything wrong with my dad. I remember having that thought. That's typical for little children. So, therefore, you have a parent who is dysfunctional and who has abandoned you in one way or another. You have a fantasy bond that that parent is perfect and you're bonding to that idealized image of a parent. Therefore, when there are problems in your family, guess whose fault it is? Not your parent, it's you. So there is self-condemnation. There's a loss of a sense of identity. What happens then is that that child will seek to find an identity in different ways. And so we're very familiar with the roles that we grow up with, the little mascot, the cute little one that everyone is endeared with. 
the family jokester, that was my role uh, that I came up with uh, to survive my early youth. You have the little parent, the eight-year-old who tells everybody else what to do and tries to bring order uh, into uh, the family. Then you have the, the saint, the one who by performance is going to bring a sense of identity and a sense of acceptance to their life. Well, it all is fine until you leave your family of origin. Your little role that you figured out works fine in your dysfunctional family. Then you get out in the world where everyone's not dysfunctional like you are, and that little role you're playing doesn't work so well, and you, that's when you end up in the therapist's office saying, what just happened to me? And you're trying to connect the dots, and you spend the rest of your life connecting the dots. Now, in that text, uh, Bradshaw makes an interesting statement. He says, in order for a child to reflect on parental uh, rule, roles and find them wanting, in other words, for a child to be able accurately to critique parents, he would have to separate and stand on his own two feet. And I quote him, this no eight-year-old is going to do, in fact, cannot do. He obviously didn't read 2 Chronicles 34. Let me tell you about Josiah. He comes from a dynasty, the Davidic dynasty. His grandfather was Manasseh, who was perhaps the most wicked king who ever ruled in Judah. That's his grandfather. Now, I have a grandfather. And because of my grandfather, I, I have a name, not just Wilson, but my grandfather was a, a godly man. He was chairman of the deacons of our Baptist church in my little town in East Tennessee, sang in the choir. He was chairman of the, he, he was a, a chairman of the, of the school board in our town. He was a civic leader. I have a grandfather with a name. Well, Josiah had a grandfather, and he was the worst man who ever lived as far as Judahites were concerned. He was so bad that he worshipped other gods and set up their altars, including the god Moloch. And you know something about Moloch. He was the god who allegedly required the life of your firstborn to show your devotion. So there were uh, Moloch was a stone god, and in stone he had arms reaching out like this. And if you're worshiping Moloch, you put your baby in the arms, and the baby rolls into the fire and is killed. That was Manasseh who worshiped Moloch. Manasseh died, and his son, Ammon, became king. This would be Josiah's daddy. It's hard to find anybody to be worse than Manasseh, but perhaps Ammon was. He was so bad that he was assassinated when Josiah was eight. So now your family reputation is that you're a killer of babies and a worshiper of false gods, and you lead other people in the same, and right before your face, your dad is assassinated at eight years of age. I wonder what John Bradshaw would say about a little boy like that. What chance does he have to have a meaningful life? And some of you at times with your background have wondered, what chance do I have with the background that you have? I'm assuming my children must have thought that every once in a while. <laughs> well, I want you to look at Josiah. Josiah was eight years old when he began to reign. We all know if you're a child king, you have, con you have uh, counselors and others who help you, secretary of state, other people who kind of tell you what to do. Your mama's going to help you out, the king mother. And so I'm sure he had plenty of help. But look what it says to him about him in verse 2. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. That is an amazing statement that shatters all the psychological wisdom of our day. This kid could not have done that. He did. Why? 
because of spiritual revival. No matter how broken you are, no matter how wicked you have been, God revives his people when they simply turn to him. Now, I have a question about Josiah, and that is, who taught this boy? Now, we've seen the name Huldah, the prophetess. She was contemporary with Josiah. She was a powerful prophetess, godly woman. I suppose Huldah found her way into Josiah's life and influenced him. His mother may have been an influence in his life. But let me say to those of you who work with children and with youth, we are deeply grateful to you. Children's lives are developed very early on. My uh, great-grandmother was taken away from my grandfather's home when he was six because she was mentally ill. But she was a believer, a solid believer. My grandfather's dad was not a believer, her husband's. My grandfather, as I've told you, was a devoted Christian. I wonder who taught that boy. I'll tell you who taught that boy. My great-grandmother, before she was taken away, six years of age. That was his spiritual training. And it stood with him, and he grew, developed. These young years are vitally important. And Josiah, at the age of eight, made a decision that he was not going to be victimized by his background, that he was not going to be defined by the dysfunction in his family. I don't think I made that determination by eight. It took me till 25 to figure that one out. But at some point, brothers and sisters, if you are going to be revived by the Spirit of God, you are going to decide you're not defined by the dysfunctions of your past. And you're not going to make excuses anymore. The Lord is the giver of life. And he came to give you life and give it to the full. And nobody can take it away unless you decide to let them. Josiah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. So the first comment I want to make is he focused his life. We'll see at the end of Josiah's life, he, he was never rid of his dysfunctions. He still had his scars. He was not perfect, but he focused. And the revivalists and historians of revival that I read say that in revivals, there is a focusing of one's attention on what's really important in life. And one of the big problems we have in our culture is we have an array of things going on. We have so many messages coming to us, so many demands upon our social lives. I mean, it's absolutely amazing how busy even our teenagers can be. We need to teach them and ourselves to focus. Is your life focused? Do you know what your life is about? Your life is about this, doing what is right in the eyes of the Lord. Regardless of your income level, what kind of car you drive, whether you have good health or bad health, whether you're going to live to be 90 or live only to be 25, your goal in life is to please the Lord. That's it. And you will not be able to please him unless that is your goal. Because the entropy that is in your life is going to lead you to do a number of other things and lose your focus. I always find with godly people who are revived, there is a narrow focus in their lives. When I talk to unbelieving friends, they want to do this. They want to do that. They've got their bucket list. They've got things they want to do before they die, the places they want to see, as though that's going to give them eternal pleasure. It's not. It's all fleeting. The only thing that matters is that we do what pleases the Lord. That's exactly what Josiah did. Look at uh, later in verse 2. Not only did he focus his life, he chose his models. This is an interesting statement. Not only he did what was right in the eyes, but look at this. He walked in the ways of David, his father. David wasn't his father. Ammon was his father. Manasseh was his grandfather. Do you notice that Josiah chose who his father was? 
Now, of course, David was his father being an ancestor. But this means more than that. Josiah selected his model in life. He picked his mentor. He picked his hero. He picked his champion. And it was not his dad. In Memphis, Tennessee, as you know, uh, we have a history of racial tension. And I would say we also have a history of gospel resolution to racial tensions. And those two things go on at the same time all the time. So we're involved in racial tensions. But in a largely Caucasian congregation like the one at Second Presbyterian Church, I'll often hear men who are 40 years of age who become a little defensive about their incipient racism and about the legacy of their families. They'll say, well, my parents were not racist. My parents were not racist. I wish I could say that. Actually, I wish he could say it too, honestly. But we're more devoted to our family legacy than we are to walking in the ways of the Lord. And because we're proud people, we defend our country, we defend our families, we defend our political parties, we defend our cultures, and of course, it's a good thing to defend people when they're right. It is not a good thing. It is not a good thing to defend someone when they're wrong. And we need to select carefully the models that we're following. I was telling one of you yesterday, I have five people whose portraits may as well be on my wall because they're in my head all the time. They're my models. When they die successfully, they become heroes. But I learned because of Solomon, people mess up at the end of their lives sometimes, so I don't make them a hero until they die. Now it's safe. So four out of five of my champions are now heroes. They're dead. There's one still living, and so I'll wait and make him a hero later. But they all have identifiable traits that I want to emulate. I wish I emulated them more closely. But they're before my face, and they are my spiritual fathers. I love my natural father, and I learned many things from him, and I'm grateful. I am grateful for both my father and my mother. But in my spiritual life, I choose my father. And then I minister to my earthly father and love him and continue to learn from him. If you're going to have a revived heart, you must do what Josiah does and renounce anything that is not holy of the Lord. And you must embrace what is of the Lord. So Josiah not only focused his life, he chose his models. You must too. Thirdly, notice once again in verse 2, he did not turn to the right or the left. That is, he was steadfast. He was determined. And I find there are things on the right that tease us. There are things on the left that teases. The things on the right pull you toward traditionalism, moralism, legalism, the way it's always been done, the conservative route. The things on the left pull you toward unbelief and cynicism and anti-supernaturalism. And you've got both of these pulling on you. One of them is called Fox and one of them is called CNN. And they're pulling on you. And one of the great tragedies in the church now that desperately needs to be revived is that they're being pulled to the left and they're being pulled to the right. And the church is giving its mind to propagandists in the political realm. It's amazing to me how the church has lost its Christian mind. They've lost their mind. They've given their mind over to this commentator or that commentator. That's where they get their information. I told uh, the, the church in Peoria where I'm now pastoring, I said, I can tell you all stopped reading your Bible. And you're listening to Fox or CNN. You want to know how I know? 
you're acting like them. You're not acting like Jesus. You're not acting like the Apostle Paul or Peter or John. You're acting like these commentators. You talk like them. You use the same ways of arguing. You destroy nuances the same way they do. You make straw men and destroy them just like they do. I know who you're listening to. It's very obvious. Could I call you back to the Bible and cut down the noise? It's okay for you to be aware of what the propagandists are saying. You should be aware of it. You're a citizen of this country. But for you to imbibe it and let that be your worldview, you've ceased to be Christian. That's all I can say. He was not swerving to the right or to the left. He kept his mind and his heart on God and his word. And he was steadfast in it. Now let me say this. If you do this, the island you live on is going to get a lot smaller. Right now, the one who is most despised is the one who critiques the right and the left. Because you're implying that those people are extremists and they hate that. So for you to be self-critical of your, of your own self, critical of your own country, critical of your own political party, you will find this is a very lonely place to be. And I say, let the island get as small as God's going to make it. I'm going to stay on the island. And I'm going to be with him. Some months ago, I called my dear friend, Rufus Smith, who's an African-American pastor in Memphis and one of my closest uh, colleagues in ministry. And after the George Floyd episode and all the chaos that occurred after that, I called Rufus and I said, Rufus, I'm, I'm getting disoriented You've got to help me. The cheese is moving. I don't know how to make sense out of what's going on right now. We talked for an hour and a half on the phone, at the end of which we came up with one word we both agreed on, perseverance. Don't lose your mind. Stay the course. When you know you've got him and you've got his word, you can listen to others, you can critique them, you can learn from them. But you don't swerve from this. That's what Josiah did. That's a revived life. You know where life is coming from. You know where life to the full is to be found. And you latch onto it with everything in you. So he focused his life. He chose his own models. And he did not turn to the right or to the left. Now look at verse 3. It says here, for in the eighth year of his reign, that would be 16 years of age, teenagers, while he was yet a boy, he began to seek the God of David, his father. There you have a very important message. At 16, he decided to seek the God of his father. What did that mean? Well, look and see in the rest of that verse. He began to purge Judah and Jerusalem of the high places the Asherim or the Asherim and the carved and the metal images. To seek the Lord is to destroy the idols in your life. Get rid of them. So you don't say to your adulteress, listen, I got to break it off. My wife's upset, but you know, I've got your number. No, you destroy that bridge. You burn it, you're no, there's no going back. That's what the revived life does. There's, there's a determination. At 16 years of age, he said, I've seen enough of life. And I know where these other thought forms and lifestyles lead. I'm watching you all. I will have nothing to do with that. And I'm going to destroy them because I'm the king. And I have the responsibility to decide. And I'm deciding. They're gone. So... At 16 years of age, he was acting like a functional parent who says, I'm in charge, not because I'm smarter than you are. It's simply because I've been ordained and commissioned for it. And I took baptismal vows, and I promised I'd do certain things. I promised I'd rear you in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Honey, I'm sorry, I have no choice. I'm under orders. But as Joshua said, for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. 
So a 17-year-old wants to get drunk in your house, have friends over and do inappropriate things, not be involved in church. I'm sorry, you have to find a new house because for me and my house, we serve the Lord. So with tears, you watch them go another way because your house is under orders. Josiah realized this at 16, that he had a responsibility, a very unusual responsibility to be a king at 16. But look what he did. He sought the Lord. He went after him. He knew he had a lot to learn at 16. And if you're 60, you now know more than when you were 16. You have a lot to learn. And if you're 70 and you start losing your memory, (laughs) you have to relearn what you already learned. You've got to seek the Lord. You say, how do I do that? The very Bible that we're reading, that we see was so important in Josiah's life, you seek the Lord in the Bible. You seek the Lord by taking time to seek the Lord. When Jonathan Edwards is in his teens, 19 years of age, he's taking long trips in the woods because he just wants to be with him and wants to know him. And God made himself known to Edwards, who is one of the most brilliant men this country ever produced and undoubtedly our greatest theologian and philosopher in all of our hundreds of years as a, as a people here. Edward sought the Lord. He knew that he was worth seeking and finding and loving, and he wanted to know him. That means, brothers and sisters, we've got to put other things out of our lives. You cannot be completely connected to everything going on. You cannot be on every email thread. You cannot be copied on every text. You cannot be in every conversation in your classroom in school. You can't know everything that's going on if you're going to seek the Lord. Your golf handicap can't be as low as you thought it could be. You can't make as money as you thought you wanted to make. You don't have enough time to travel and see all the places you want to see if you want to seek the Lord. It's very demanding to seek the Lord and extraordinarily rewarding to seek the Lord. I mean, the only way that Josiah got this was by God's grace in reviving him. I'm telling you, this is the revived life. You know where the riches are and you go after them. And it is in him that you find these riches. This is what revival is. And I just pray that you and I will be revived this very week. In our job descriptions, Chuck, on our staff, in the first part of the job description, it is required that every man and woman on our staff knows the habit of being renewed daily by the means of grace. So you don't have to have a special conference. You don't even have to have me. Well, you do need preaching. But you have the ordinary means of grace, prayer and the Bible and Christian fellowship where we share together and hold each other accountable and encourage each other. It's the ordinary means of God's grace to you through which he revives your heart and makes you steadfast. You have to stay in those means of grace. So when I look at our culture and I'm seeing not just what's going on in Washington, I see what's going on in our churches. That's what concerns me. And I find that especially the younger you are, the less likely you are to have regular church attendance. I'm telling you, that is not leading anywhere good because church attendance and fellowship in God's people is necessary for the revived life. If you look at what the chronicler is trying to do, he's trying to say to Israel in 400 BC, would you please look and see where God blessed? It's when people came back to his temple. What's the temple? It's the church. 
Peter and Paul both teach us the temple of God today is the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. You come back to the temple. And furthermore, the chronicler is trying to say, you, you follow the Davidic dynasty. Well, that's exactly what we do in following the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the greater son of David. So we're coming back to the temple and we're coming back to the king and we're being renewed. And when we don't, I'm telling you, bad things are going to happen. And that's the reason that for the American church, evangelical church coming out of COVID is so vital for us. We've got to be sure that we regather the sheep and you need to regather some of your friends. Be sure they're encouraged to get back where God is blessing. Josiah sought God. Well, that included, of course, the purging in verses 3 through 7, the purging of Israel of its idols. Um, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones said about revival, a true revival means nothing less than a revolution casting out the spirit of worldliness and selfishness and making God and his love triumph in the heart and life. A revival, he says, then, really means days of heaven upon earth. Now, as we said earlier this weekend, revival, and this is what Edwards taught, revival is not just a spectacular weekend when you have a mountaintop experience. It is not a temporary fervor that you experience or some of mystical experience. Now, those are available to us. They're rare, but they are available, and I am deeply grateful for the few that I've had in my life. But revival, as Edward said, is simply returning to the normal Christian life. The normal Christian life consists of this, knowing the holiness of God knowing the depth of our sin and our need, being profoundly grateful for our salvation, and in our gratitude, ministering in the name of Jesus Christ to the church and to the world. Now there's the normal Christian life, and that's what revival does for us. That's what Josiah experienced. Well, fifthly, notice in verses 8 through 13 that we read, he restored true worship. Once again, it's the temple. And it had fallen in decline under Manasseh and Ammon. And Josiah said, enough of that. And you'll see, not only did he restore the sanctuary so that people could worship again, and the priesthood was reestablished. But in the next chapter, you would see, he reinstated Passover. Now, Hezekiah did the same thing some years before, but it had fallen in disabuse, this use. And now Josiah says, we are going to take a week of your time, you boys, 12 years old and older, many of you families, you're going to come to Jerusalem, and we are going to remember the Passover lamb, the blood that was put over the lintel, that spared our firstborn children, and allowed us to be delivered from our slavery in Egypt. And God took us out into the wilderness and made a nation of us at Sinai and triumphantly brought us into this land. We're going to remember that. And a revived person does that. He says, we're going to go to the house of the Lord, and we're going to come to the communion table, and we're going to remember. Because it is that gratitude that moves us in our revived life. We're revived, we're awakened again to what God has done for us. Anytime you read about revival in the Bible, the 16 revivals in the Bible, or the historic revivals that we've discussed yesterday, you find extraordinary joy just taking the people over. They're so grateful for what God has done in passing over them with his judgments and rather saving them by the blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ. So Josiah was very concerned about his own personal worship. And you notice he was concerned about the worship of the people. That means that if you're a 15-year-old 
You should be careful with your own worship life, your personal devotions, your worshiping church, and the worship of any of the 12 or 10-year-olds that you have influence over. Every 15-year-old has influence over younger kids. They look up to you. So just take whatever measure of influence you have. I always tell elders, you know, who are to be apt to teach, and some of them will look at me and say, people aren't asking me to teach. I say, well, I got a solution for you. Go down. Very few people can teach their peers. Even fewer people who can teach people older than themselves. But more people can teach people who are 10 years younger. You know why? Because you've experienced things they haven't experienced yet, and they're very interested in how you handle it, for one thing. So go down 10 years. You say, well, that's not enough for me. Go down 20. Go down 30. If you're my age, go down 50, 60. You say, it's still not working for me. Go to the nursery. (laughs) And I've never seen a nursery worker turn down an elder and his wife who are willing to help. You go wherever you can help, wherever you have influence. Josiah was a king. You're not. Well, you're a king. Yes, incognito. But you're not a physical king. You don't have that much influence. But you take the influence you have and you're seeking to sanctify everything around you. And when revival hits, this is exactly what happens. During seasons of revival, you will not find evangelism explosion programs. They're unnecessary. Everybody is talking about the Lord and urging everyone to get right with him. During revival, you do not have stewardship campaigns, capital campaigns. They're entirely unnecessary. They had, during Hezekiah's time, they had to build extra buildings to hold all the offerings. They had to tell people to stop. They didn't have where to put the stuff. This is revival. This is life. I want it. Do you? Josiah wanted it with all of his heart. He sought it. And he brought it to effect in those around him. Now, lastly, with Josiah, let's say one more thing. You can't help but notice in in chapter 34 the discovery of the Word of God in his life and the impact that it had. What a discovery. The culture had become so bad They lost their Bible. The Torah, probably Deuteronomy, the book of the covenant. And now they find it. I tell you, I have so many Bibles, I don't even know how many Bibles I have, different translations. What if I lost them all for 20 years? What a joy. Do you understand the great privilege we have of having God talk to us? He's still talking to us as our Father. And this is how we hear His voice. And when we hear it, we tear our robes. We say, Lord, I've I've not kept your word. What hope is there for me? And the Lord responds in the gospel, I love you and I forgive you. And you're mine. I'm so glad to have you back. Come back to him, dear friends. And come to his word. And order your life based on his word. I know the island is getting smaller. But one day, that island is going to grow and take over the entire universe. You stay on that island. You stay true to God's word. That's what Josiah did. Now I'm going to close with this. You get to chapter 35, and you'll find how Josiah died. And I want to suggest to you, I think Josiah died as the son of a wicked father who was struggling with OCD. And I Uh, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder and the reason I say that is if you look at how he died he got involved in a battle that was not his to fight he obsessed over it 
the Egyptian king, Necho, was on his way to fight a battle in the north. And Josiah goes out of his way to go fight Necho. And Necho tells him this, your God, Yahweh, told me that you shouldn't be fighting this battle. What are you doing here? And Josiah fights it anyway. And he dies at age 39, a young man. So he dies of his compulsions. I told you, if you grew up in a dysfunctional family, you're not getting rid of your scars until you get home. And neither did Josiah. But I want to tell you this. On his gravestone was written, he walked in the ways of the Lord. He didn't turn to the right or to the left. He followed in the ways of his father, David. That's the epitaph on his gravestone. So don't worry so much about your tics and your problems and your compulsions and your dysfunctions. Seek the Lord. And there's the secret to a revived, meaningful, full life. And that's what I want for you. That's what I want for me, for Allison, my wife, for my five children and all their spouses, and for my 14 grandchildren. That's what I want, is that we would focus our lives on him and enjoy him now and forever. Amen. Father, we thank you for the great gift of life, real life, not just physical life, but eternal life. And thank you for the privilege of enjoying eternal life now in this space and time. Lord, please descend upon us with grace again. Revive our hearts even this Lord's day that we may desire you, that we may seek you with all of our hearts, that we may find you, and having find, found you, we may love you with everything in us. We thank you for this young boy, Josiah, who by your grace lived a revived life. Help us, O oh Lord, to learn from him, but especially to learn from his later son, the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the sons of Josiah, the son of David, who leads us in revival. May you, Lord Jesus, be exalted in all of our lives. May you be praised in all that we do and say. And we look forward, O oh Lord, to that great day when you, the King, will take hold of your kingdom and rule in majesty and power. And we, your sons and daughters, will be at your right hand. What a day. And we praise you and thank you for that hope that is set before us. In Jesus' name, amen.